Okay, welcome to Defen episode number 39 with um, Mitri all the way from Canada. Hello. And this is Vijay from Holland and we have uh, as usual Ray from uh, Belgium. Hello there. So, um welcome to the podcast uh, Dimitri. Um first of all, uh I think there are two questions from my side. One is um I think I want to start with the most important question to whether to continue this this episode or not. Emacs or something else? Ah, yes. So, uh, I actually use IntelliJ with Cursive. <laughs> oh, <God>. Okay. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. I'm out of closure world now. God damn it. <laughs> but um friend of mine actually at work uh, does use Emacs, so he's been trying to convert me. We'll we'll see if it happens. No promises, but I'm I'm open. <laughs> <laughs> that that's pretty bad, you know. That that's a really bad way of saying. Oh, you know, I know a brown friend who has a brown oh, friend. Oh, oh, oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> I, I get to say that, by the way. Um, you know, some nice white people, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't believe know if you do, me. Actually, yeah. <laughs> believe me. Uh okay so and, and and your internet persona what is yoktos ah so yeah i, I knew this would uh, come up so it's uh, originates with I, i was into like crafting missiles for a while and all the existential okay. horror and so on and of course all his like cosmic entities have those weird and pronounceable names and okay. there's one that called yogstasas i think and i kind of just man- mangled it and then it turned out okay. to be really handy for online handles cuz it's completely unique and nobody takes it so every time we go to a new site i have a handle ready but then it also became a bit of yeah. a personal joke cuz in lovecraftian mythos it's often you know the protagonist discovers some cosmic knowledge beyond human understanding and just drives them mad and people look at them like you know they become crazy and outcast from society and it's kind of like how people view lisp often right it's like it's this weird <laughs> language with this weird parents and once you learn it that's it you're lost to the world so it's become okay, a private that's, that's a me. deep story it's not it's not just your cat running across the keyboard or something i thought that's going to be a bit more mundane but this seems to be super deep okay so did you did you discover uh yogtos or lisp first then I actually discovered the the handle first and then I just kind of worked it into Okay, it became the thing. It became like the thing. Yes. GNU is not Unix type thing. Yogtots. Exactly. Is... <laughs> it's not existential horror. So how did you get into closure? So walk us through the history of of uh, you getting into closure. Yeah, sure. So I mean like when I went to university, right? There was kind of like that standard program where it was mostly focused on being the Java factory and I learned object-oriented programming and you know a lot of java and basically i thought that's that's the way you develop software right you make objects and patterns and classes and you know it all makes sense and then i started working in the industry and of course when i was green and new i didn't really know any better right and i would work in those java projects and i would have this feeling like wow this is so complicated this is so hard right but you know i'm new maybe i'm missing something maybe i don't understand and there's going to be some purpose to it at some point and i worked what for a few years what did you find complicated about it dimitri cuz it's interesting to me mm-hmm. what what you found like you know what did you find that was complicated well i mean 
specifically with Java, it's the use of patterns, right? Like stuff like dependency injection, AOP, right, like right, the way right. app servers work. And then this patterns just, they're supposed to make things very generic, right? And reusable. But ultimately, when something becomes so difficult to reuse, it's more code, you know, to reuse it than to write it from scratch, you kind of lost the purpose at that point. And that's why I find often happens with Java projects. You try to make them like really generic, and by making them really generic, you create this really complex systems that can you know, solve every problem, including the one you might have, as opposed to writing the system that solves the problem you actually have. I mean, did you actually try and use generics, for example? Because I always think of generics as a good example of something which looks fairly simple on the, on the surface, but actually is quite complicated once you start getting into it. For sure, right? Like, like, it's a good example that you can get a lot of complexity there. But I think, like, in the language, like, if you do have a statically typed language like Java, you know, generics are a good idea, right? Because the alternative is something like Go, where you end up just writing the same code over and over. <laughs> so this is potentially where, again, like, dynamic typing actually is an easy way to solve a problem, right? Without introducing mental overhead. But, but I think, like, in Java, like, it goes far beyond generics, right? It's just, like, all the patterns you have and... Mm. Also, the shared mutable state. It's something you don't even realize that's a problem until you use something without it. Because yeah, you know, yeah. if that's the only way you write code, you don't it's kinda of like telling a you know a colorblind person that's you know, you never experienced color red, and they're like, well, like well, I don't know what I'm missing, right? You know. <laughs> I bet, yeah, right. And and I think, right, like for me, it's just the complexity kept growing and I felt literally exhausted working with Java. Like for a while I was actually thinking of switching careers because I was not enjoying what I was doing. I what? felt <laughs> right like I really felt like I was exhausted and I wasn't getting anything done. And I had absolutely no time to do any side projects, right? Like I'd go to work, right. I'd write my code, I go home and I just like I would not want to touch a computer. I would not want to write code. And after a while, I started thinking about it. Like and I was like, okay, what are other people doing? Right? This can't be the only way you solve problems. And the other thing that was on my mind was the fact that kind of like Moore's Law is kind of peaking, right? And we started moving towards multi-core architectures. And I knew I was not smart enough to write multi-threaded code in an imperative language. With threads and mutexes and locking, like, you know, I can manage two threads, maybe three, but that, that's it, right? <laughs> so if you're looking at the world where multi-cores are going to be the norm and you have like, you know, 8, 16, 32 cores, course. Did you ever read the um, the Java concurrency and practice book? Because that, that that is like a, that's what Rich Hickey reckons was the kind of motivation for him to right and write the um, language. I mean it's been years, uh, but yeah, I, I think I've read that one and a few others, right? And I was like, I realized you know this is something like I want to be able to do, and I just like I couldn't practically see myself doing it. I just I'm mm. not smart enough. To do that. <laughs> like people who are coolest do them, but it's not yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, like right, it gave me motivation to look, is there other approaches to deal with concurrency? And the first actually functional language I looked at was Haskell. Like I did kind of like a bit of a review, and Haskell seemed to be like the most pure, the most functional one. I was like, okay, you know what? I might as well dive into it. And I really enjoyed it, right? Because it was like it was a real learning exercise. All of a sudden, I wasn't just kind of like learning new syntax or learning, you know, some new libraries or APIs. Mm. I was really learning to code in a different way. Mm. And it was like a mix of being frustrating and enjoyable because like 
on the one hand, you kind of have to throw out everything you know and just start from scratch. But on the other hand, it's a really rewarding experience because you're really learning something new. And once once you spend some time with it, you really realize the value of that approach, right? And like Haskell completely sold me on functional programming. Mm. And for a while on static typing as well, actually, to be honest. Like mm. I was one of those people telling people that, you know, like, Types are a little solution to all your problems, you know, it compiles the trans and so on. <laughs> I've been there, I've done that. <laughs> I've since gained a, a bit of a more nuanced perspective on the matter. We've got it here, guys. We've got it in one tip saying this. <laughs> <laughs> I have changed my perspective. And you know what? Like I don't I don't think static typing is not valuable, right? Like I do think it has its own value, and I think it has its trade-offs. And my main issue sure, with the way sure. static typing is presented is not with people advocating for it and saying it's valuable. You know, that's perfectly legit. My issue is with saying that my way is a highway, right? That's like right. if you're not using types, yeah. you're being, you know, unethical or you're being lazy or because we don't have any evidence for that. And well, at the well, same just, time. Just before we go there, let's just like you you were jumping to Haskell, you were preaching the benefits. What changed mm -hmm. your mind about that to bring you into so, closure? Okay, yeah, that's actually a yeah, good segue, right? Because so what happened was I used Haskell, I kind of like, I liked it, but mm. I also realized, you know, realistically, I wouldn't be able to use Haskell for work. And JVM is what I'm familiar with, and I'd like to keep working with a JVM. So my options were basically Scala or Clojure. And I kind of played with both for a while, but what I kept finding was that, and it was kind of funny because originally I was like, oh, parents, it's so many parents. And especially coming <laughs> from Haskell where you have like no parents, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, well, this is ugly. <laughs> but at the same time, like playing with both Scala and Clojure, what I found was I kept constantly looking things up in Scala. Like every time I'd open the editor, yeah. I'd have to Google and figure out how to do something. Mm -hmm. And even after using it for a few months, I'd still be doing that. Meanwhile, with Clojure code, that just wasn't happening. And part of it was the fact that I had the REPL, and anytime I was confused, I could just run the code and see what it's doing. Hmm. But the other part was there was just the syntax was so simple and regular. And hmm. that kind of like, you know, that was a light bulb going off in my head, realizing that you can have this like stupidly simple syntax that's extremely expressive and extremely flexible. And all those benefits that you get from like structural editing, being able to serialize it easily, being able to use macros on it. And it just, you don't think about the language. And what, right, like the more I used closure, the more I realized I was thinking about the problems I was solving, not the language. Hmm. And that meant, you know, I could use that brain power I was using to think about types, about syntax, about, you know, all the different ways you could do things in a particular language to actually focus on other things, on things that was of interest to me. And language kind of became incidental. And I think that's the biggest value of closure for me is that. It's incidental to me. Like I don't think about closure when I work with closure. I think about my problems. And closure is very small and gets out of the way. So given that now we have this uh, new languages coming on JVM, for example, I see a lot of tweets around about ETA, the, the mm -hmm. Haskell on JVM. Yeah. So what do you think about that kind of approach? Because you say JVM is the biggest uh, reason why uh, you know, because of the familiarity, mm -hmm. because of the libraries and all the stuff available. So what, what do you think of, uh, you know, these kind of languages, or at least ETA, for No, example? I think they're interesting. Like, I think it is a really good approach, and especially considering it's able to leverage existing Haskell ecosystem. Like, you kind of yeah. get this language that can both leverage Haskell and the Java ecosystems together, which is really neat. 
right? And I do think like functional, like statically type functional languages are worth exploring. And Haskell is hmm. a well-designed language. And yeah. I, you know, like given options between like Haskell and Scala, right? I definitely would prefer Haskell myself. Of course, yeah. But okay. <laughs> but I also like languages like Elm that like take the step back from Haskell, whereas you know they went with strict evaluation versus lazy. And I do yeah. think like it makes it easier to reason about. Hmm. So, yeah. So how long have you been doing Clojure now? Uh, about professionally, probably for about eight years. And wow, okay. I started using it like very early, like uh, probably yeah. 1.0. So about pretty much since it came out. Yeah. Like even before okay. it became cool. viable. And that's actually how uh, I ended up with Luminous, right? Because when my mm -hmm. team started using Clojure, uh, there wasn't really an established web ecosystem for Clojure. And we actually ended up writing our original project that's still in production now uh, using servlets. Because we were all familiar mm -hmm. with the Java ecosystem. We knew how servlets worked. So we're like, okay, you know, like the strings thing looks kind of cool, but you know, you know, you know what we're doing. <laughs> but eventually we switched to ring and we realized, you know, like the effort of putting projects together was kind of non-trivial. And we wanted to have a template that worked for us. And that's kind of was the origin for a luminous template. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, because in one of the things that uh, in the closure world is that, you know, we, we are, or at least the community is against the frameworks mm -hmm. and then we pick, you know, libraries together. Um, of course, first of all, I mean, Luminous is amazing work. I mean, nowadays I don't start any project without Luminous anyway. So oh, awesome. I just keep adding all, all, all the things everywhere. And then just, even for, if I want to do something, I'll just generate the template and then see how you build the template and then just right. pick the parts that I like. So that was very, very nice. I mean, extremely useful and extremely, I mean, beginner friendly, even, even for the dumb idiots like me. So if you, um, so coming back to the, the luminous part, because, you know, finding the right libraries and then making sure that they're working together. So how do you, how do you feel about that, that problem in closure? I think uh, it is a legitimate problem, right? Because I kind of agree with the notion of, uh, not using frameworks and using libraries and composing them, you know, having the user having the power to just decide how they want their application to be structured. But the gap yeah. there is, unless you know the ecosystem well, you can't really do that effectively, right? Mm. So if you're a beginner and you're just coming to Clojure and you're like, okay, how do I build a web app? Well, you yeah. know, just go look through all those libraries, figure out which ones are still maintained, put them together and good luck. It's yeah. not really realistic, right? So we kind of need mm -hmm. this middle ground, and I think templates do provide that. Where somebody can put things together for you in a workable state, you can run it and focus on actually doing things you find interesting, and then learn things as you need them, right? Maybe you want to swap out a templating language or a JDBC library or something. And then you kind of mm -hmm. figure out where it's hooked up, and hopefully it's not too complicated, and yeah. go with it, right? So I, that does seem like a good approach to me. But I don't mm -hmm. really see the value the frameworks provide over libraries in principle, right? Because mm -hmm. especially in Clojure, where libraries are mostly data-driven in terms of API, it's very easy to pipe them together, right? Like I get a library, I see what shape of data it returns. Maybe I massage it in a trivial way and pass it to another library. And it's very easy for me to build up my application that way. Whereas when I work with a framework, I kind of have to buy into the whole opinion of the framework and how to, it wants me to solve the problem. And it works really well when I'm solving the problems the way the author of the framework thinks and envisions the solution, but mm -hmm. it completely falls apart as soon as I need to step sideways, right? Because mm -hmm. then you have this whole inversion of control happening. 
And I don't find that's helpful because it leads to this indirect code that's harder to reason about. But I think yeah. like we could have more uh, higher level libraries in Clojure. For example, and it's just I haven't had the energy to do it in Luminous, but like one example would be something like authentication. You could have a library yeah. that manages, yeah. you know, registering a user, logging in a user, you know, like doing all those things, and just initializes with a map where you give it the routes you want to use, and then give it the functions that actually handle the specifics of authentication, persistence, and loading the users. And then you just plug this library like a module and off you go, right? Mm -hmm. And again, you can do this without using the framework. You can just have smarter, bigger libraries that use other so what libraries do you think internally. About, because friend and buddy are meant to do these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So I think like I, I would love to see that, right? I think that that might be the way to move to the next level of making closure apps easier to build because it is true that the initial stage of kind of putting the little pieces together is a bit tedious, right? Because you have to do those common things every time you build a web app. You know, setting up authentication, setting up your users, setting up the database, and so on. And Luminous solves some of the most painful points of that, but I think you could go a lot farther and be more opinionated. Yeah. And I think like... But we, we, do have, uh, we do have friend and buddy, as uh, uh, Ray was pointing out, right? right. So. So, what do you think of those? Uh, well, those actually, I, like that... I use Buddy and Luminous, right? Mm. But yeah, yeah. but I do find it's still like fairly low level, and it's a good example that we have a lot of these libraries that effectively do the same thing, right? They're slightly yeah. they have slightly different APIs, and that's only real. There is no fundamental difference between them, and we have a lot of that happening in the community, right? And I, I would really like us to move past making the simple libraries that can like solve a problem that's already been solved, and start moving towards building more interesting libraries. Just like pick hmm. a stack, maybe not. It doesn't have to be the ideal stack, but just the stack that most people use, right? And just say, okay, yeah. that's the stack we're using. You know, that's what's popular. Let's just accept it and move on, hmm. and not keep but trying that, to reinvent it. That seems it. to be. I think that's a, that's a really nice nice argument, but the thing is that maybe this is something. Uh, of course, everything is personal opinion in this podcast, so <laughs> I don't need to uh, put that uh, disclaimer up front. Uh, so that what I find in enclosure, for example, if you see um, uh, all this uh, Re React based mm -hmm. templates, uh, not templates, the uh, libraries. Right. So there was there was one library comes in, and then there is like twenty other React right. you know, closure script things show up, mm. and somehow. Uh, it's a nice thing because everybody differs in a small way or something, mm -hmm. but in, in the end, you know, the, it's it's. I think somehow the the, the community gravitates towards at least one thing mm -hmm. being the being that thing. Otherwise, we have rum and quiescent or whatever. I mean, whatnot. There there has been like twenty or thirty ways mm -hmm. of uh, using React in closure script programs, right. and now pretty much everything is reagent reframe, or at least that's what you know yeah. the, the community has settled on. So I think it does. Yeah. It does happen organically, right? That people gravitate towards a specific stack, but yeah. and yeah, I don't want to discourage people from also right like experiments and trying things. But I think it would be yeah. nice to have kind of this official almost stack to say, you know, like if you're not sure and you're not trying to experiment, you just want to get work done. Here's what you should use, right? And yeah. the value for me in that would be that maybe we could a lot of libraries right now are run by individuals, right? Like even Luminous is mostly individual effort by me. Yeah, but yeah. I really would like to see it more driven by organizations and community, right? So you have a bigger bus factor. And yeah. then once you have this one stack that's popular and a lot of people are contributing to it, it's easier to do bug fixes, it's easier to do maintenance, 
And the work gets amortized across more people, right? Because it is a lot of work mm -hmm. to maintain open source projects. And it's hard to fault people, right? Like often we kind of get upset that people abandon their project, but it's like, it's a lot yeah. of work. Like, and yeah. they're doing this on their free time, usually. Isn't that the closure way, though? I mean, closure itself seems to have a bus factor of one, so every library should also. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a joke, by the way. I know I like it's nice yeah. work, and the guys do work on it, so yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I before think I like get it's... the flame mails coming in. <laughs> <laughs> we will never get rich Hickey, on this podcast <laughs> but i think it yeah. is like necessarily a problem with smaller niche communities right because we yeah, just have yeah, less yeah. resources to work with and it is what yeah. it is but we can yeah. strive to improve i think it's the trick i mean to to sort of vj's point about personal opinion you know i quite like the idea that that problems are never really solved um mm -hmm. You know, because I think that they rarely are actually. And, uh, and an example I sort of just thought off the top of my head is the like, there's this whole component system thing um, that started with Stuart Sierra. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, the the guy mount. from uh, Toilets who did the mount stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we've got um, um, uh, Integrant from James yes. Weaver. Yeah. And we've got various other ones. And I think, and what they're always trying to do is they're always trying to say, well, where is the... Where is the actual heart of the problem here? Where is the, you know, and what, what is the API? What are we trying, how are we trying to empower users to do something that is more like, I think we're still trying to find what is idiomatic in the closure community. And I think that's quite interesting that even what is really idiomatic is still just isn't really settled law yet, you know? Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. And I think, like, I've seen the change dramatically, right? Like, from like eight years ago to now, how people yeah. use it and what people do. So there, there is definitely value in exploration. And, but at the same time, I would say, right, like, just by sheer act of using closure, you're so far ahead of most languages, right? <laughs> because the language, it's true, right? Like, just by sheer act of having immutable language, that's simple and consistent and has, it's very stable. It has a large ecosystem and can rely on, right? Like all those aspects, like for example, if you're working with something like Node, right? Like building the React app is way more work than building the Reagent app. Mm. Yeah. In, in many, many aspects, right? So just by picking closure, you're just like solving all those problems. And partially- But hey, I mean, you, you get, you, if, you, if you use Node, you get like a million libraries though, you know, one per every line. So. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> Not necessarily a good thing, but definitely an aspect sure. of the ecosystem. But the worst part is, right, like yes. every one of those libraries is going to be packaged differently using different tools and different testing methods. Um, it's its own like little garden, right? And yep. that's, that's very frustrating because like when you try to put those libraries together, they all do a different things. And yeah. I think that's another part of closure, right? Because in a lot of languages, like they're trying to add same features as closure, like, you know, JavaScript best practices look very similar to closure script best practices. But the problem is you're kind yeah. of like bolting this onto existing ecosystem and language. And that means your language is getting more complex and it's getting bigger. And when you see projects, now you see like lots of different styles, like, right, you can open a JavaScript library and see callbacks, promises, and the sync code all in one library. And it just shows how that library evolved over time, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas 
closure be saying, you know, this is how we're going to do things and being op opinionated from ground up and having all those novel ideas from the start means the code tends to be a lot cleaner and you have a lot less decisions to make about how you're going to do things. Yeah. I think the, um, the, the, other, the other side of that, though, I guess, is that um, things like JavaScript and Scala, to some extent as well, is that you end up with people having kind of opinions about like what is the right way to use this mm -hmm. language. And then that's, that becomes a kind of optimized locally for those, for, the, for those teams. And then if you join that team and you happen to be more of a functional programmer than an mm. object-oriented programmer, or you happen to be more of a Scala Z programmer than a standard Scala programmer, let's say, then everything kind of breaks down, you know? Or if in the JavaScript world, if you want to use immutable JS, then you're kind of like on a, on a small edge of the community. It's definitely not the default. You know, anyway, my point is that it's kind of down to developer discipline to in, in languages, especially like JavaScript, rather than being the default like enclosure. Absolutely, right? And the problem with that also, right, like if you're using, even if you're not working on the team, but say use a library from somebody, right? Hmm. Every library has its own flavor and its own style, making it much harder to understand how they work and how to use them effectively. Hmm. Whereas with Clojure, it's like it rarely happens, right? Like I've read, like I've read many libraries because the documentation is not ideal often. So you end up reading the source. And I find it's really easy to just sit down and read through Clojure library, understand it fully, which I have trouble doing mm -hmm. in a lot of other languages, right? Like I've literally never contributed to a single Java library, even though I use it for a decade professionally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Because like every time you yeah. look at it and you're like, oh, this should be an easier thing to fix. And you open the project and you see like a million classes on it and you're like, <laughs> yeah, I have other things to do right now. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But so, mm -hmm. if you if you if you're talking about you know of course you know there is a lot of uh, complexity, but seems like you know JavaScript became like the 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 language where everybody can jump in mm -hmm. and and I know you know you've been uh, uh, of course you know you participate in a lot of discussions where you're leading a team and you're bringing up especially you bring up the idea that uh, closure is very easy to um, mm -hmm. you know get started with right. for for beginners. So how how do you how do you see the contrast between these two then? Well, I think for, for um, beginners, right? Well, I think like the reason I think JavaScript is popular is just because, right? Like anybody can open the browser console and start writing JavaScript. Like the barrier yeah. is literally zero; it's not there. You open mm. the text editor, you open browser, off you go, right? Uh, so that obviously makes the language incredibly popular and incredibly accessible. And I would say this yeah. is the biggest uh, road, like barrier for closure adoption is that it's not easy to get started with. And the caveat there is, if you're starting on a team that's already using Clojure, or you have somebody to mentor you who knows Clojure well, it is easy to get started with. Because they'll just point you in the right direction, tell you what tools to use, help you out with any initial problems you have, and can be a really great experience, right? But if you're just starting on your own, and you don't know anybody who uses Clojure, it's really daunting. Because even yeah. in terms of editors, like your options are either Emacs or IntelliJ. Nothing and else, yeah. And they're both complex, right? Like once we learn the tools and internalize them, they're amazing professional tools. But if you just want to play around with closure, it's not great. It's not like you know popping up like VS Code or Atom and off you go. And the things that make closure nice, like the REPL, they're people don't even know about them, right? So even though you have this REPL, you have this nice tool, in practice, most people don't realize they can use it, especially from the editor. 
So you can like, you know, recompile the replications and see that it takes, you know, like a minute to compile and go, it's like, this language is garbage. Like, what am I doing? Right? <laughs> so. So what is, what is your, your program for onboarding new, new developers into Clojure? And, and what, is the, what is their experience generally? Um, so that's interesting, right? Because my team uh, hires co-op students quite regularly. Yep. Yep. And they're straight up universities. They've never seen Clojure before. They've rarely seen functional programming or like very superficially with maybe like, you know, a course on Scheme or something. Um, yeah. So we kind of developed a program basically where we use Clojure Distilled just to get them to read through on the first day. Then we get them to play around with a few workshops to do kind of like reagent apps, uh, read through Brave Clojure, and start throwing them on our projects like literally within a week or two where we have like small bug bugs or something and we give it to them and they try to solve it and they make a pull request and somebody sits down with them and reviews them. We do a bit of pair mm -hmm. programming. So in general, we find it's really easy to know onboard people. Like within okay. a couple of weeks, you can get somebody who's never seen functional programming and get them to write useful code. Mm -hmm. And caveat yeah. being that you have experienced people on team who can set them straight and help them out when they get stuck. But for a lot yeah. of applications, right, like, I think there is also a difference, right, if you're solving problems like on foreclosure, where you're trying to figure out how to do puzzles versus writing real-world apps, where a lot of code is actually fairly straightforward. You're just moving data around from A to B and massaging it in some way. And that's like 90% of most web applications. Yeah. So, so what, what is your, your stack generally? I mean, the, the kind of stack that you use, of course, you, I'm... I'm Pretty sure you're using Luminous everywhere. <laughs> but uh, Luminous yeah. comes with all sorts of plugins, right? Right. So we use uh, Luminous. We use Postgres for data store primarily. We use mm -hmm. uh, Reframe on the front end. We re yeah. recently actually started using Keyframe. Yeah. Because we find that uh, the way it handles uh, routing is kind of nice with the controllers. And we are using uh, Reddit now for routing because yeah. it works on both client and uh, server. So it's really yep. nice to be able to have, like, especially if you're doing SPAs, it's handy. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like really nice and batteries included. So it provides us stuff like Swagger out of the box. It uh, yep. introduces interceptors for Ring, which is really handy. Mm. And that's, yeah, that's basically our stack. So we actually use uh, Lumo for deployment scripts because we use Kubernetes. So we generate okay. the JSON for the Kubernetes from ClojureScript. And a friend yeah. from work actually uh, recently published an open source library uh, mm -hmm. called Viewer that kind of basically he extracted from the stuff you're doing for making those okay. little scripts for driving uh, Kubernetes builds. Okay. Um, we can link it maybe like in the comments later or something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that's basically so, our, our stack. Okay. So what is the most most difficult thing? Because I think we, we bashed enough around, uh, you know, about the error messages uh, on this podcast. And uh, now we have uh, one alpha that is um, trying to fix some of the issues already. So wh what do you think of the state of that that problem that we have as, uh, you know, uh, as closure uh, team? Yeah, I think uh, it's... I definitely do think it's a barrier for beginners because, right, like first time you see a closure stack trace, it's a bit daunting. Um, yeah. I also think you quickly realize that it's actually not that bad, right? Because of, because of the immutable nature of the language and the pure functions, usually the error happens to be on a line that's the last line of stack trace. So you just like scroll down the line, even if the error is meaningless, you go to that function, look at it, 
And you know, if you're writing reasonably short functions, it's pretty easy to figure out, oh, I did this or I did that, right? And you have the REPL, so you can try it out and see what happened, capture maybe some inputs. So I don't think it's as big of a problem as people make it out to be, but at the same time, I think it could be improved. And I'm really glad Cognizant is now taking it a bit more seriously. And it looks like they're trying to make tools for making their reporting nicer. Um, I do think spec in general, like especially the concept of spec, is really great and really useful. Because I do think like you should be validating your data at the edges. Yeah. And spec provides a nice way to do that. And then, you know, once the data is in my business logic, I don't think I should be validating that problem, right? Like, by, I can assume that it's already been sanitized, and by the time I start doing business logic, it should be in good state. So, mm. partially, like, structuring your applications in that way helps as well. Yeah. But also, I think spec could be improved in terms of API. Because I feel it's its own language. Mm. And yeah. it's heavily, it's very macro-driven, right? Where we always talk about having everything being data-driven in Clojure, and spec is kind of like the opposite of that. So I find yeah. there is a bit of mental overhead in figuring out how to write specs effectively and compose them effectively. And it doesn't really represent the shape of the data, which would be my biggest complaint in the spec. Right? When I have like heavily nested data structures, the specs for them don't really tell me what the data will look like. Yeah. And I think that's really valuable because that's one thing I find schema does really, really well. You can look at the schema and immediately tell what, what the data is expected to look like. And there is a library from Madison called SpecTools that we're using at work. And mm -hmm. it has a data spec syntax, which lets you use schema style syntax with spec. But unfortunately, because of the nature of spec, it doesn't always compose well with actual specs. And there's some quirks you introduce. So it's kind of like mm. improves some things, but makes some things worse. So it's still not really ideal, in my opinion. Can you explain a bit on 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 you know spec being a language and and macro driven thing? So maybe mm -hmm. you know um, do you have an example in your mind that that you can uh, um, explain the, the the limitation that you're facing with with, with spec? Uh, not anything concrete off the top of my head, but more like, right, like if you look at the spec, just um, the public API for it, right, it's fairly large. And yeah. it's a whole new set of functions you kind of have to keep in your head that are different from the closure core functions, right? Ideally, yeah. and like Rich Hickey had like some of his talks talking about that, right, like he says that one of the biggest advantages of closure is that you learn the standard library API. And now you can transform any kind of data using that API. And you don't have to learn new syntaxes and new rules and mm. new semantics for it. But spec introduces that, right? It does have its own semantics and its own rules and its own yeah. set of functions you learn. And if you're using them day to day, it's not really a problem, right? But if you use mm. spec sporadically, you're always going to have to come back and look in the documentation for it and figure out how to do yeah. things. I think some of the words that they've used are a bit, I mean, again, it's like, it's like any opinion, but I think I think things like um, spec slash cat, for instance, mm -hmm. to say that you know this is some sort of um, array of values seems weird to me. You know, so words like that, you know, it's just it's not natural. I don't see that in any other function of closure. Yeah. So those are the kind of things that I kind of think are a bit weird because. I, I I can see like like you say you have spec and and spec or which is <laughs> well yeah um, okay I see what you're doing there um, you know because you have you, you know you have to have the, your own version of the ands and the mm -hmm. ors I guess 
Um, bit of a shame, but okay, you have to do that. But then cat, where is that coming from? You know, and multi, well, multi is more obvious because it's a multi-method, mm -hmm. but there are, there are various ones which seem like they're a bit disconnected from the standard syntax. Yep. Um, and that seems just, just yeah, you know, puts me yeah, up no, a little that's, bit. That's a good way to kind of like sum up uh, the issues I have as well with some concrete examples there. And that's a, that's a problem like I've never had using schema, right? Because with schema, it's all data-driven. Hmm. So now, you hmm. know, if I need to compose schemas or modify them, I just use regular closure for that. So yeah. there is no extra language to learn. And I really hmm. like, I do think you could have schema-style syntax using spec semantics and getting the spec benefits. Hmm. And I really would like to see like completely data-driven syntax on top of spec. Like hopefully somebody like maybe uh, like data spec and spec tools or something matures enough where you don't really see spec. Yeah. I think that's very likely to happen actually. I think because people, I think inevitably there's going to be some tooling on top of spec from the community. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know we use that those Matosin tools as well, and obviously those are great guys. They're doing awesome work there. Um, but you know, uh, it's like you said, it's a work in progress. I think one of the problems yeah. for me with spec is that we're like two years in, and it's still alpha, and that's like, well, come on, guys, you know, shit, I get off the pot, you know. So I, I really hope with 1.10 it moves out of the alpha world into just that is spec. Because there has to be some end to this alpha bullshit, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. And also, like, if it is alpha, I don't think it necessarily should have been packaged in the core, right, as a dependency of the core. Like, it mm -hmm. would have been nice to keep it separate, mm -hmm. and then once it's ready, actually put it in the language. Because Clojure has been really good about not introducing breaking changes, but this will necessarily have a breaking change when they change the namespace and everybody has to go through and like change their spec from alpha to non-alpha. Hmm. So like it almost like got, I think, maybe oversold in terms of readiness because a lot of people jumped onto it and a lot of people are using spec now, but we don't really know how it's going to change in the future. I remember there was like a comment there from Alex Miller or Rich Hickey himself that they're kind of like thinking about reworking spec a bit. There hasn't been like any details on that, but yeah, that could I, I be anything. Remember, I still remember reading that they were going to make it more programmable, and mm -hmm. I mean that that definitely will help. You know, to to your point about making it you know more data driven. If it's more right. programmable, if there are more tools to to program, like to generate specs and stuff like that, then. That would be a good, but again, I don't see how that's necessarily a breaking change. I mean, I think we're, there's a lot of criminal criminalology at the moment, and that's the kind <laughs> of thing which is a bit annoying about closure to some extent. Is that mm -hmm. you know, like you say, why why introduce it in the core if it's alpha and you are going to break it and you're going to change things because it's in a lot of code now. You know, it is really yeah. in a shitload of code. <laughs> Even all of closure, you know, right. <laughs> And and I think, yeah, like, right, like, that's, um, like, Clojure being a list has this huge advantage that we can express most things in user space as libraries. Yeah. We don't need to add them to the core language. And to me, right, like, if you look at most languages, like, after a decade of use, they end up with a lot of craft. 
And if we like, we talked about this earlier, right? That closure usage patterns have changed significantly since you know 1.0 till now. Hmm. But the language largely stayed the same, and I think it's primarily because we have me good metaprogramming. We can do things like core async or Spectre or even spec as libraries. So, hmm. and to me, that's the best of both worlds, right? Because we can try this new idea, see if it works out. People can start using it, and then we get a better idea. Now we don't have to like either deprecate something in language and force people to write their code, but we're also not affecting existing projects using this code because they can just keep using the library and they're fine. But now we can move on yeah. to something new gradually, right? And the mm -hmm. core language, I think, should stay small and unopinionated, mm. right? Because if mm. you have a small core, you can use it in many domains effectively. And you don't have to create a language that's really adaptable to every domain and think up every possible use case for the language. People can create libraries for their use cases. And that's something that's not possible in a lot of languages, or not to the same extent, at least. I kind yeah. of had that. I kind of had a bit of to and fro with, um, with Alex about this on the Twitters. Um, mm. Because I, I think that spec kind of has, like, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, you don't need to. I think Stuart Holloway says this quite a lot, you know, is that you just need to write the library, you know, don't worry about it, you don't need to change the core. And my argument is, well, yeah, but you didn't, that's not what spec is. Spec is not just a library. Or if it is just, if it is, if it is just a library, well, it's like it got a special place because it's, it's a library which always comes with the core code. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think that if you could, if you could like, have that as an option where you know you don't depend on 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 that. Well, maybe you could put more things into these, like strip out the core, you know, strip out all this string stuff, strip out all the XML stuff, strip out loads and loads and loads of things, and have it all available via Depths.Eden. That's fine for me, you know. Yeah, no, I agree with that as well, right? Like, if it's going to be in the core, I think it should be solving the problem holistically. And I definitely agree that something as fundamental as error reporting shouldn't be left up to kind of like, well, community will do it at some point, somehow, right? <laughs> it's just, it's too fundamental. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, if spec was released as a completely separate thing from core, and Cognitech said, okay, here's this neat idea we have, you know, it's contracts, it works to solve these problems, use it and build stuff on top of it, that would be cool too. But because you are kind of recognizing that, yes, this is a problem that needs to be solved in the core language, solve it fully, right? Don't, don't do this kind of halfway thing and go, it's like, well, community will handle it. But I think, I think Cognitect is, um, it's, it's like, you know, as you said, you know, if you're using Clojure, you're more interested in solving some domain problems. Mm -hmm. So I think they're too busy solving domain problems to actually fix Clojure problems, so, <laughs> which makes sense, you know? And because no, the language agree, is too right? good to solve other problems, so <laughs> they're too busy with that one. Yeah, and I absolutely see it, right? Like, I, I mean, like, obviously, you know, I have no affiliation with Cognitex, so anything I say is a pure speculation, but my feeling <laughs> is that they focus on their consulting business, right? And that makes sense, right? Their company, they need to eat. So the problems yeah, they're yeah. going to address are the problems their clients have. And yeah. onboarding and user friendliness are not that problem because they're going to be working with their clients and teaching them. And that's the thing I mentioned before, like my work. Yeah, we don't have any problems onboarding people because we just sit down with them and teach them for a week and they're done and they're good. Yeah. But yeah. it's a big problem for growing a community at large, right? Because mm. it needs to grow organically and it's going to be growing from people who are going to try closure on their own. 
And if their experience mm -hmm. is poor, it becomes a really big barrier for adopting closure in general, right? Like I think ClojureScript yeah. solved huge problems that are still unsolved in JavaScript. And overall, it's easier to use. It's like you're going to get your project done faster, guarantee it. But if you don't know how to get started with it, you're never going to try it. So yeah. it's a moot point of that, right? Yeah, that's true. But be before we, we get into next topic, so, so we've been talking a lot about specs and, and uh, there is a lot of discussion between static typing versus specs, right? So wh where do you see the value? I mean, uh, should, should, all, should we all say, you know, fuck it, and then we go to, uh, we just wait for ETA people to finish their shit, and then at least there is a company behind it. They, their product is the language. So we, we all switch to ETA, or, or we should, you know, think, no, 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 this is still the better way. I, I think spec, or at least like gradual typing, is fundamentally a better way. And here's why, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll come back to the whole static typing thing, I guess. <laughs> um, so what happens, right? What do types tell us? Types are primarily a tool for telling us that code is self-consistent, right? They're not telling us the intent of the code. And there are languages mm -hmm. like Coq, right, like that force us to express a whole program as a specification. But you know what? At that point, your program is written in your types. And who is helping you type check that? Right? You're, you still have to mm -hmm. manually read the specification, understand that it's correct, and you can have bugs in your specification. There is like, uh, I think, insertion cert example in Idris that's about 300 lines long. Mm -hmm. Like, I can write it in dynamic language in under 10 lines. And I'll have yeah. much better understanding that those 10 lines of code do exactly what I want than this formally provable 300 line proof, right? Like a good example, another mm -hmm. example, right? Like from math is from its last theorem. I can state it really easily. I can mm -hmm. test it for specific use cases I have really easily. But a general proof, you know, there's maybe like, you know, a handful of people in the world who can understand it. And the proof that you yeah. can't understand has no value. And the thing with static typing is that you're, you end up being restricted to a set of statements that the type checker can verify. Right? And every other statement, whether it's correct or incorrect, has to be thrown out. Right? So that, yeah. that's kind of the limit. You're writing code for the type checker, not for the human reader. And a human reader can learn to think kind of like a type checker. But ultimately, right, like you're, writing, you're not writing code for people to read at that point. And the problem is, like, right, like with simple examples, people always say, it's like, oh, you know, you have type inference and HM, you know, you never have to write types. That is not the issue. The issue is that I have to structure my code in a specific way now, right? Like in Haskell, mm -hmm. I can't just put a log statement somewhere in my production code. I have to design my core application around pushing the side effect to the edge so it can be expressed via monad. And that's yeah. why monads are so prevalent in Haskell as opposed to any <laughs> other languages, because that's the only way you can solve like, this problem, because side effects are tracked by your type system. And, you know, yeah. there, are, there are benefits to that. I completely accept that, right? There you get some guarantees you wouldn't get otherwise. But those guarantees come at a cost, and the cost is that now you're structuring your code in a specific way. And in, in cases where this makes sense, you know, like a compiler, for example, it's, you're probably going to structure your code the same way anyways, right? So there is no kind of like additional mental overhead. But in a lot of real-world applications, it's not the case, right? And then your code becomes more convoluted, and now the compiler tells you it's self-consistent, but you don't know that it's doing what you want it to, right? <laughs> yes. and, and so it's like, well, I know it compiles, I know it runs, I, I'm still going to have to write tests or provide specs or do something like that to know that it's really doing what was intended. 
So it doesn't yeah. obviate you from that need. And I think spec provides this really nice middle ground because you're literally providing a specification for what your program is meant to be doing, right? And yeah. by writing the specification at top level, you're kind of guaranteeing that all the rest of the code is doing what it's supposed to. You don't need to provide a spec for each individual helper function. You just need to provide it for your API. And once you have tests and specs on your API, you have really good guarantee that your code is doing exactly what you want it to. Right? And that's why I don't see it as a real problem in the functional language, at least. Do you think that there, there will be um, like an advantage to a language where we can specify the types at the boundary, but within the core, um, we, we don't need to have statically typed system? Potentially. I mean, that's kind of like where gradual typing systems try to go, right? But I yeah. think like you could go even farther. Like I really like approach of Erlang Dialyzer, where it's yeah. a linter, right? And what it tries to do is it looks for code that's obviously incorrect, as opposed to trying to prove that it is correct, right? Okay. And I think like if you think about uh, closure code, right? Like if you're working with immutable data, each time you do a function call and you pass some data in, you can treat it as a binding. So you say you know I passed yeah. in a map or a vector or whatever. And it has those values. OK, now I know it has those types. So as I navigate down the tree, I can kind of track those types. And whenever I use it incorrectly, I can notify the user that, hey, you know, you had a map and you tried to do something on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've um, been watching Mike Fikes recently on, uh, on mm -hmm. Twitter. But yep. he started to put some type, you know, doing some work on type inference in ClojureScript, mm -hmm. where, you know, you can if, if you're going to do like an ink operation on a string, then he can tell you that that's a failure. Right. No, that's exactly a perfect example of that. And he's done some amazing work on that regard, right? And there was a recent talk from Andrew, uh, I forget his last name, the guy who works on CLJS time. And he talked about doing like a similar kind of system as a library for closure. And I think mm -hmm. that would address, honestly, like 90% of annoyances with type mismatches in closure. Because you know the yeah. linter will be able to quickly tell you, hey, you use this, you meant to use that. And there's going to be that, you know, maybe like 10% case where just it's undecidable and could either give you a warning or just leave you alone. And then you'll have your specs and tests, which ultimately I think are what's really telling you that your code is doing what you intended, right? And there's no shortcut for that. Like yeah. and I think that's um for me at least, right, that's a real issue, right? Like, types don't tell you the code is correct, and they can only help you pretty much as much as linter, or just in a different yeah. way, right? They give you a different set of guarantees, but they're not guarantees about your code being correct. And I think that's a really important distinction. I think the way I look at it as well is that the, the joy that the joy that I get from closure is, is the fact that I can use the REPL and I can just start like evolving a program um, mm -hmm. from some simple data structures and some simple like calculations about what this thing means versus that thing. I don't need to type anything. You know, I don't need to know what the types are or anything. I can just do it from data structures and from data and from you know fun function composition. Um, and I think that's that. It, it, arguing about types, you kind of lose this this piece, you know, which is the fact that you can just program something, because that that's really the 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 win that we have with closure. Mm -hmm. I think is that you can just program something really nicely, 
And then you can then you can decide whether or not it's appropriate to put some types on top later. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And like to add to that, like I find in many cases when I solve a new problem, I don't know what the solution is going to be. Hmm. So I don't know what the types are because I might try different approaches. And like you said, when you try it on the REPL, you can try this or try that. And by I find like often I'll gain understanding of the problem by solving it. And then I might completely throw away the original solution. And now that I know what I need to do, write a completely different solution for it, right? And the types kind of, they prevent this kind of thinking, I find, right? Because now you have to think about your types first and you formalize the thing. And now you kind of fill in the blanks, right? But if I don't know what the thing is, how can I formalize it? Yeah, Yeah, this is the thing to me is like, looking from a types perspective, it's just looking at the wrong, it's like you've got the wrong end of the telescope. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> I mean, like, to do a bit of kind of like a digression, right? I also find it interesting, like, uh, like the discussion about types. To me, it almost like it feels like people are putting the cart before the horse. Because even in studies, like, there was a recent GitHub study, right? Like, on, like, you know, whether type, dynamic typing or static typing is effective. And that's already too early to have this discussion, in my opinion. Because what you should be really looking at, let's look at a whole bunch of projects on GitHub. Compare different languages, compare like large numbers of small, large, you know, all kinds of projects and see if you see trends, if you see statistical trends between languages, right? And then let's say we see that statistically Haskell projects have less defects than Java projects, right? Like people open less Mm -hmm. issues, updates come out more often, whatever, right? Then we can make a hypothesis and say, well, maybe the Haskell type system is what's the driving factor here, right? That's the difference. Then we can set up some experiments around that and say, okay, let's test this hypothesis further, right? But the opposite happens. People say it's like, I think types are really useful and that's what's solving the problem. And look, now let's try to prove that types are what's solving the problem, right? It's circular. But I think I think that there has been something like this. Hmm? But there has been something like, uh, like that um, research, right? And then it was um, inconclusive that, you know, having types or no yeah. types are going to give you any any benefit or not so well for sure there's been a lot of a, i think dan luke had like he has like a whole yeah, page yeah. of all the existing yeah, research yeah, right yeah, and yeah. exactly yes. right like it's been around for 50 years and we still yeah. are saying it's like well maybe maybe no like you know at some point you have to say maybe if there is a difference it can be very significant yeah I think part of the problem, though, part of the problem is that it's very difficult to, because what you tend to find is that like certain languages like JavaScript and maybe it's even Java as well, is that you've got a broader spread of like programmer, programmer skills and programmer, programmer experience. And it's very hard to factor that in. Because often, you know, I mean, this is a joke about closure that you tend to get, you know, kind of more experienced programmers and, and Haskell, you tend to get more academic programmers, more, you know, more mathematical programmers who maybe are a bit stricter and, you know, their code may be actually better than just, you right. know, just but, in, but, in a sort of inverted commas. They might be better programmers because it's a smaller community and very self-selecting. It's very difficult to factor out those kind of, you know, human factors of uh, the type factors. Right, right. But I think by that logic, you should see even bigger difference, right? Because if you're saying more experienced programmers are mm, using functional yeah, yeah. languages, static typing, like, you know, like in this languages, the code should be way better than languages that are used by beginners and intermediate programmers and so on. But we're not seeing even that, right? Like even in this languages that are used by very advanced developers, 
who know what they're doing, we still don't see the benefit, right? Or at least not the yeah. large benefit. And I think mm. another thing, Philip, before I forget, yeah, 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 <laughs> is <laughs> like we've seen this with object orientation, right? Like it's been sold as a panacea, right? It's going to be code is going to be reusable. We're going to reduce coupling. Like we've all heard that. Everything yeah. is natural <laughs> yeah. to model those objects. And what turns out, smart people can make things sound really, really good on paper. You can, like, if you're a smart person, you can rationalize anything and make it sound great. That's why empiricism is important, right? Like, if something yeah. sounds great, but it doesn't pan out to be great, we'll know empirically. But if you yeah. have those discussions around, it's like, well, on paper, this sounds really, really good, and we should all just dive in and use it and forget every other approach, that can have some repercussions, right? And like after 20 years of use of OO, we're now realizing that a lot of those benefits have been oversold or non-existent. And yeah. I feel like we have the same kind of atmosphere with static typing right now, where you just you cannot question the value of static typing. Right? You're immediately considered to be ignorant or you know you don't have the experience to talk <laughs> about, or you just like, you know, you just don't get it. And <laughs> no, you have to you're, have you're unethical. Exactly right. You're unethical. Oh so man, to let's, let's get into that one. Come on. I mean, you know, Jesus Christ. Why is well, this happening? Why are people trolling us this badly? You know, I I feel like it's the sunk cost fallacy, right? Because to get proficient with Haskell, you have to invest a lot of time into Haskell. And once you invested all this time, it's really hard to say, well, maybe the benefits aren't great. Right? Like I spend a year learning and you see it like from people literally say it, right? It's like, oh, how long have you been using Haskell? Oh, yeah, that's nothing, right? Once you use it for a decade, then you start seeing benefits. It's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like Brexit. I might not be know. programming in a decade. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's like, yeah, like when you make this big investment, it becomes kind of like, you know, people buy monster cables and, you know, yeah, they can hear the difference. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, but empirically, you know, in a double blind test, maybe you can't. <laughs> so there's, I think there's a bit of that happening, right? And people obviously get offended when you start suggesting that maybe, you know, maybe this approach isn't as effective as you claim it to be. And I think, yeah. right, like my position is it's not that static typing is not effective. Mm. You're right, like maybe it is. And I mean, I'm willing to say that maybe for some people it's way more effective, right? But like not everybody thinks the same way. Not everybody works in the same domain, solves the same problems. And until we know definitively that one approach is strictly superior to the other, we should be exploring both. We should be encouraging people to build systems and languages that explore all different kinds of approaches, not just saying it's like, okay, that's it, that's the way we're going to do things. Yeah. I think the I think the unethical thing to me is is in itself an unethical approach, though, because you know just to go meta, you know, as we like to. Um, because I think if you say that something is unethical, then you know you're shutting down discussion. You're shutting down, and you're basically saying, "Hey, all these life support machine systems, everything that's everything that's kind of important to us, um, you know, should be ripped out and immediately replaced by this system that I love, um, because everything else is literally against you know the the good things that humans need, and, and that seems like a hell of a claim." You know, oh, for sure, right? everything, yeah. else, everything else is, is literally unethical. It literally should be torn <laughs> down because it's, you know, it's, it's offensive to, to human health. And that seems, that's a hell of a claim on no evidence, you know? Yes, right? Like, and that's a problem, right? Like, if there was, like, 
concrete evidence, such so as static typing reduced defects across the board statistically significantly, right? Yeah, okay, I can I can buy the argument that if I'm you know making a medical system, maybe it is unethical for me to use something that could potentially introduce defects that I would have caught otherwise. But when you have no evidence for that, that's a really wild claim, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think we should go in the other other direction completely. You know, we should say something like if you're using static typing, then you're causing global warming or shit like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you, your, your compilation cycles are actually causing global warming. You should use dynamic languages. So, you know, there is only one compiler running. You only run bytes of code. So, you know, save the planet, use dynamic languages or so, some shit like that. I think we need to start this propaganda if, if using dynamic languages is uh, unethical. But but th there is an interesting thing, though, because I, I've been working with a lot of Python code these days because of machine learning, um, I'm interacting with the data scientists and everybody. So... I mean, it's 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 fucking horrible. I mean, it's the, the the problems that they have is are magical. I mean, there is no, you know, a standard tooling for for dependency management. You know, they're just waking up that oh, we can build larger programs with Python. So let's let's get started with all this shit. But the same problem exists in Clojure as well. Uh, if you think about refactoring, right? So how how do you how do you cope up with that one? Because this is. Let's keep the, the the whole you know less bugs bullshit aside, you know uh, maintaining code base over the period, which is uh, having types versus maintaining code that is like closure of Python. So because you've been involved with a lot of projects, so how do you see this uh, uh, thing play out in closure? So I think like for me the biggest tool for maintaining large projects and reducing complexity has been immutability. Right, because if your data is immutable and your functions are pure, the scope of uh, things you have to keep in your head to work with a particular function stays constant. Right, as your project keeps yeah. getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, if I open up a file from six months ago and look at the particular function, learning what it does takes the same amount of effort as it did, you know, when the code base was. But is, isn't that isn't that an argument for type system though? Because then then you are not type system, but uh, probably languages like Haskell where you you are essentially forced to write pure functions. Um, I don't um, think so, right? Because if hmm. you understand why you need to use a language like Haskell, you understand how to structure your code in a way where a majority of code is going to be pure. Right? And if you don't yeah. know better, you're not going to use Haskell anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's a moot point. <laughs> yeah. but, but I do think, right, like I literally treat every namespace on the project as its own library. Right, you don't have to mm -hmm. split your project like physically into multiple libraries, but it is helpful to think of each namespace as a small library with a small API of maybe a couple of functions at the bottom and the rest being helpers. And your whole mm -hmm. project is like structured of the small independent components that can be mm -hmm. reasoned about individually, right? And you grow this bigger and bigger. And I think the idea is to try to write as much declarative code as possible, where you just have those pipelines of transformation. And yeah. then you can reason about those, and you don't have to reason about the details of a library. Like, for example, you know, if you take a library like CLJ HTTP, it has a ton of code in it, right? I don't ever worry about the code inside of a CLJ HTTP. I just worry about its API, because I pass the data and mm -hmm. I get data back. And that's predictable, right? And that's a boundary, right? And then again, that's where you can put specs or schema or something. And yeah. I find if you use this approach, growing your code bases is not really a problem in closure, right? 
And this hmm. is a dramatic change from imperative dynamic languages like Python or JavaScript, where everything's coupled via state. Right? And at the same time, you're creating types because object-oriented languages encourage you to make a lot of types. Yeah. So yeah. now you've created this problem of having a lot of types and languages and helping you manage it in any way. So of course it's difficult, yeah. right? And I think yeah, like a yeah. lot of uh, pushback against dynamic typing comes from people who use those kind of languages and that's their only exposure to dynamic languages. And yeah. it's like, you know, dynamic typing is like way on the bottom of the list of problems in those languages. Yeah, that's <laughs> I'm wondering. I'm wondering what you think. I mean, this is like maybe it's a because it's a kind of like web thing, you know. With APIs, do you think that there's a tendency in it? I mean, I've seen it myself. Anyway, there's a tendency in APIs to kind of get a bit objecty, even in the um, closure world. You know that you tend to do things like you know, you have like a client, uh, or you have uh, you know a particular service. It's not. It's the the, the REST APIs tend not to be very right. composable, you know. Yeah, and I think, I guess, like, that's almost like a natural place for this kind of, like, objects of things to arise. I mean, like, people are trying to do different things with stuff like GraphQL, for example, right, where it's yeah. more yeah. like a query. But I don't think that's necessarily problematic at that level, right, because often you will, like, at least, like, the code might seem the way we structure it is, APIs tend to be fairly stateless. So most of the logic that deals with state and UI state specifically moves to the client, right? Because you're kind of like in this SPA style in the reframe DB usually for us. And then we just make this uh, service calls to do, you know, get a query, get some data. So in that sense, it's not really object oriented because we're not keeping state on a server. But you naturally do group, I find, functions almost the same way as classes, right? Because a namespace becomes kind of like a class with all static methods of it. And it's a really nice yeah. way to think about it if you're coming from object-oriented programming. Yep. And I, I don't think that's necessarily wrong, right? Like, obviously, there is appeal to object orientation because it is popular and people find some aspects of it intuitive. So we shouldn't, like, throw the baby out of the bathwater either. You know, in cases where it makes sense, let's use it, right? That's fine. But it's just in most cases, we don't really need it. And we should strive to have code that's data-driven and functional. So looking, looking a bit into the, into the future, so you know, 10 years or, or more Java programming and then almost uh, 10 years uh, or almost nearly 10 years, maybe even more. Uh, yeah, 10 years. Uh, of course, you're not... I hope you're not writing closure before you're checking. Um, <laughs> and and so so where do, where where do you see? I mean, are you picking up any other languages or you know some trends that you think that that are going to be useful in in the web or in the in the in, in the domain that you're working in, you know, like Rust of, or or any other languages? It's kind of funny because like I looked at other languages once in a while, but I just don't see them introducing anything fundamental. Right, like it's mm. different flavor, but a lot of interesting things end up in Clojure really fast. Like things like Core Async from Go channels, right, or Reframe and Reagent are good examples. Like a lot of the stuff gets to Clojure pretty fast, and you can, the best part is you can like do it yourself in Clojure pretty fast. So yeah. I don't really, like, a language should have to introduce something really fundamentally new for me to actually consider moving to it. And okay. I'm just not seeing it, right? And like, we really haven't seen it since inception of computer languages, arguably, right? Because Lambda Calculus came out pretty early on. Yeah, yeah. 
That, that, that's the thing. I think we're we're all going back to 1959s again, and then <laughs> writing uh, Lisp again. <laughs> Just uh, so so. What what is um um so from from the point of community, you know? Uh, so how what do you think about closure? I know you're extremely active in Reddit and you know all sorts of places, and and you wrote to almost. Uh, I think the second edition of your book is already out. Oh, right? so I have exciting news. Yeah. Uh, I am working on yeah. the third edition. I'm doing the oh wow uh, cool. Joined this time with a friend from work. So nice. we're going to update basically everything to latest and greatest, but we're also introducing Reframe, which I didn't really talk about before. Uh, we're going to focus on Reddit instead of Composure, and like okay. a lot more talk about SPAs and hopefully Electron and React Native if we get to it. So what we'd really oh. like to show with a new edition is that you can use Closure full stack, like literally, right? Yeah. Like from shell scripting to server-side work to web apps to mobile. You can just use one language and not worry about it, right? Mm. <laughs> one ring to rule them all. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> one parenthesis yeah. to rule them all. <laughs> Hopefully, the one parenthesis <laughs> argument is coming sometime two in the year next year. You know, but... That's right. That's right. <laughs> Look, I mean, we, we, I, I don't need to because I use Emacs, so it balances automatically. But it's we don't think about it, so, right? <laughs> So, but but is it still called web development with closure then? Because if you if you're going all the way like I don't know the whole stack and maybe even maybe are you gonna write like list machine in closure and then <laughs> <laughs> the whole stack? Probably won't go that far, but no, I think it still makes sense, right? Because it's still gonna focus mostly like on server side, client side, and like I would argue mobile apps and stuff are still kind of under purview of web development because you're using you're using the web stack to build them ultimately, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super cool, super cool. But uh, is there any uh, timeline or something that uh, people can go and check, uh, like the uh, raw editions or whatever the, the, these people um, call? We're hoping to wrap things up, hopefully by end of the year. We're kind of like on chapter five. We're looking to eight to nine chapters, so we're halfway through. Okay. Um, okay. Scott Brown is my co-author, and he is uh, kind of working right now on chapter five, I think, as we speak. So <laughs> we're hoping to have something soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I know Pragmatic, cool. uh, they do kind of those early editions where you can buy yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, completely ready. So as soon as it's up, I'll I'll talk about that. Perfect. Okay. So uh, any other topics you want to touch uh, touch upon on? One one quick one I'd like your opinion yeah. on actually, Dimitri, is yeah. um, the the kind of something I'm excited about anyway, which is the sort of revolution that Depths.Eden is bringing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's interesting. Like on the one hand, it's a new build tool which fractures our existing build tools. On the other hand, I do see how it uh, reduces the barrier to entry, right? Because now you can just get closure. It'll have it's on the way to read libraries. And if they're pu publishing GitHub, now you can get them without going through Maven and so on. So I just think that that's value. Like, I'm not entirely convinced it could have been done as a lane plugin, for example. But, mm. but I can see uh, the argument the Cognitech makes for why they did it the way they did it. Uh, so I guess we'll, like, we'll have to see. I, I really hope it'll at least integrate with lane at some point. And I think people well, it's have a bit around, actually. I think um, Lane already, there are tools to integrate um, depths.eden with Lane again. So Right, yeah. No, that's what I mean, like uh, driving it from Lane again as a plugin or something. Yeah, that, that's already there, though. There's a line okay, of yeah. tools. Yeah. Yeah, so I think like as long as it becomes kind of seamless, I, yeah. 
I think it's nice, and I do think it gives us more options. But I, I haven't really used it like much myself, so I don't really have a strong opinion on it one way or the other. You've got to upgrade yeah. Luminous to go with um, the CLJ new. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> then we can get the latest. We can get the latest greatest as uh, Git shards, and we don't need to worry about this Maven stuff. You know. But I think, like in real world projects, they're still going to be relying on JVM libraries that are in Closure, right? But so, you can still do that with Depths.Eden. I suppose and via right, shards do... as well, you know. So it's no problem. Hmm. So yeah, like I mean, maybe like what Lane should do is really just get rid of its own dependency management, and just farm it out to CLJ Depths, and then just be yeah. more of a build tool as opposed to dependency management tool. But I wonder how 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 we are going to cope up with all the force pushes people are doing, you know, with the, the, these good shots everywhere. Like that's going to be amazing. Oh well, you know. But at least you know it's not like fucking requirements or txt or some yeah, shit like yeah. that. Yeah, no, so I, it's I slightly think, better. I think like using tags is probably like a decent compromise. And yeah. like right, like if yeah. you're going like against master, that's like yolo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to have at least some process. I'm, I'm not sure there is a single language that is able to solve this dependency shit in a proper way. I mean, every language has the same problems. And, and since the Perl days or... Mm. Now, the, the only thing that you could do is basically, okay, you know, and do the Anon CVS, check out the whole shit and then compile it yourself <laughs> and then hope that it's going to be okay. No, you it's, know, it's that, a hard that, problem, right? And By I the way, like... it's just, just, just to mention that, if you go on... You never, you never depend on master... You always depend on, on a particular SHA. So it's you're never really tracking, you're never tracking the commit. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You're only ever tracking, yeah, you're that, only that, ever depending yeah, on that's one why, version of it. I mean, unless they've yes, like people, can, people can overwrite it. I get that. Yeah. But, you exactly. Know, yeah, that, yeah. That's, yeah. It's not, that's not good practice, yeah. let's say. You know, that's, <laughs> that's not how things should work. You know? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I I think you're right, Dimitri. Right? I mean, this is a, this is a really hard problem to solve. I mean, mm -hmm. we we haven't been able to figure this shit out in in any, I don't know, uh, any any language so far. Every language has its own, uh, you know, I don't know, workarounds for maintaining your dependencies properly. Exactly. Um, yeah, but at least I think uh, th th this is the weird part, though. I mean, uh, we are we are so. Uh, maybe I'm getting older and older, and then so like, you know everything. Everything is fucking cynical now. Like, oh, you know, we we, we can't get this shit run properly anywhere. So what I'm gonna do is completely package my entire fucking computer. You know, that, that, <laughs> put another that's doctor it. container. No, so, exactly. Go, yeah. So so put put every shit into that one, and then just ship it. That that's cool. way easier than to actually solve that I can run this code anywhere I want. It's also <laughs> so that, amusing. That is the state we are in, which right? is amazing. Like coming yeah. from the JVM, like when you look at Docker first time, you're like, oh, so we've had this like for decades. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, it lets you like Docker compose and stuff, lets you add like, you know, databases and so on. But just the idea yeah. of packaging your code, right? Like on Node, like yeah. a Docker container of a Node app is basically an Uber jar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think like, right, like the uh, people like complain about Maven. But like you yeah. look at every other dependency management system, like npm, and you're like, yeah, they knew what they were doing, <laughs> yeah. right? Like stuff with npm, it's like, oh, why do you need to specify a version for the library you're depending on? I'll just depend on whatever version is available. It's like exactly good luck with that. That's the worst yeah. idea. Yeah. yeah, but but the nice nice thing, nice thing, you know, quote unquote nice thing, is that the the proliferation of of these ideas across languages. I mean. 
Every time I go to Python, the first thing I have to do is install pyenv. So I can actually have 2.6.2, 2.6.3, or the bullshit that is. And then the, the JavaScript guy started the same shit with, with multiple environments. And then Ruby yeah, people man. have the same thing. It's just crazy. I mean, yeah. it's instead of solving the problem, they're like, oh, you know, this is basically forked from Ruby multiple env. So we are just going to use Python compiler in it, and then we're done. So anyway. I think we need to move to uh, things on, like Nixos and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's it's like that XKCD, you know, like a uh, fifteenth standard. Let's <laughs> let's bring a warm, one 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 more right. standard here. <laughs> well, you can't but fuck I with thought... Nixos, so that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That, that's the immutable. They, they can thing, have right? that on a T-shirt for for free, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so, um, but of course, you know, we have our own, our own uh, problems to solve uh, with, with all the dependency shit. I, I didn't use Depsy Eden, by the way, so maybe that's the magical thing that's going to solve everything. I've got to say, I've everybody. been using it a lot um, in okay. the last few months, and I really like it. So, you know, I think uh, I've taken the red pill, however it is, the blue pill, whatever these pills are, <laughs> I've taken one of them. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> I've taken the depths pill, and it's, uh, <laughs> it really is nice. It's very enjoyable. Yeah, but isn't this going to be tricky to say? Hey, which version of this uh, library we're using? Yeah, that's FC seven nine nine four four three two D B B C C A bullshit. Well, you can. Well, I like Dimitri says you can tag it. It's no problem. Yeah, yeah and I think that's oh, going to okay, be so. kind of a bit of a best practice, right? The yeah, yeah, your releases. So. Yeah. But then, like you know, yeah. like if somebody pushes like a commit to bug fix and gets merged. They can just start using that commit right away, and then when the tag comes yeah. out, you'll swap to the tag, which is handy. That's true. Yeah. But I do think, like in a ge in general, right? Like the situation we have with tooling in a language enclosure is so much better than many other languages, right? And especially mainstream mm -hmm. ones. Like for all the complaining. Just a small point there. I mean, the reason why I like Depths.Eden and things like that is because you don't have to run build tools. I mean, to me. I have I have closure. What am I building code for? I mean, I know there are some interop things, <laughs> but fuck that. If I don't need it, why am I building it? Why am I building anything? I don't want to build anything. I just want to write my code, put it on GitHub, and then run it somewhere. Yeah, and I think like I like that. You know, as a as a side effect of that too, right? Is with closure, like you know, like with Scala. Like every few releases, they would break the byte oh, compatibility, yeah. right? And you have to rebuild the yeah. whole world. Like the fact that we're able to package libraries is just source, and you just pull all the source in and compile it against your version of Clojure compiler in JVM. That's huge, right? Because yeah. like it, it makes your language so stable. Like at work, we updated to JDK ten recently from JDK eight. We haven't had to change a single line of code. Like we waited mm. for Lane Engine to you know fix up the couple of bugs they had, and I think Closure Script Compiler, and then we're just like, oh, we'll just update a couple of dependencies and done. But like mm. in like Java projects to this day aren't able to do that. Mm. Like yeah. IntelliJ still runs on JVM eight. Yeah, <laughs> they're not here. Like Spring, like I know a lot of people working like with stuff like Spring, right? And yeah, their companies are basically just keeping it frozen because it's too much work. And was Oracle having this aggressive update schedule every six months? Using Closure, yeah. right? Like you're basically insulated from that. Mm. Yeah. It, you know, like we just update JDK version, and as long as Closure compiler runs, we're cool. Mm. Like that, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
So anyway, we're, uh, we're hitting, we've, we've expanded the time limit now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is too good. I do talk a lot. <laughs> yes. Amazing discussion, by the way. Um, so I think uh, we are almost at uh, one hour, 20 minutes. Yeah, pretty much. Um, again, uh, thanks a lot, Dimitri, for joining us uh, all the way from uh, cold Canada. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was, it's, it's unseasonably warm. Now that our plant is, you know, cooking. Uh, ah, we had a 40 okay. degree weather a couple of days ago, which is not usual for Canada. Oh, you mean 40 degrees Fahrenheit? Uh, no, no, Celsius. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. For, what? Four zero? Yeah. yeah what the was, fuck? Okay. It was the hottest day thing in September in like past like 75 years or something. It's Okay. Because it's I thought Canada is always in my imagination, you know, like uh, people are uh, drowning in snow and, you know, like with, with, with seals everywhere. Yeah, global warming is a thing, VJ, you know. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> We know this is because of the static compilers, you know. Like, <laughs> yes, I think I think Both we should start people. spreading these, these words slowly. Yes. Hashtag the static compiler. Hashtag <laughs> server world. Static language causing global warming. Yeah. yeah. Let's go yeah, yeah, narrative. Good, actually, good point. We should like say, you forget Bitcoin, look at static compilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like recompiling. Like anything, anything that doesn't have a REPL, right? If you don't have a REPL, you're unethical. <laughs> yeah, and and, yes. you're killing and the, the worst planet. part is writing, writing your blockchain shit in Haskell. That is the that is the <laughs> ultimate crime. You know, like, this is the next level. Yeah, you know, like yeah, it's like killing dolphins or some shit. <laughs> <Literally>. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I was actually thinking, you know, that that you know, in this podcast, we've been having a lot of closure people, of course, because you know, we just want to uh, live in our own bubble and then tell each other that everything is awesome, <laughs> and. <so. laughs> I was saying, at some it. point, Don't we spoil should... it. <laughs> <laughs> at some point, I was thinking hmm, we should invite other people to to basically get insulted by them or insult them. So maybe we should try that experiment at some point. Oh my god! You yeah, know, get but... get like uh, Martin Odersky and uh, <laughs> Philip Wadler and you know, and, and tell them that you're the reason. You know, like uh, the, the the world is burning now. <laughs> okay, they're they're not going to show up in this uh, podcast anyway. But it's okay. interesting, right? Like to debate with people who are like really, as long as they're like willing to have an honest debate, like it, yeah, it, it's yeah. interesting, right? Because you get the different perspective and different opinion. And right, like I just want to reiterate like my position too, that I have absolutely no problem with static type or people using it. And I think it is valuable and interesting approach. Uh, my my oh, come on, don't don't, don't be diplomatic. Oh, I mean, don't, sake, only yeah. Yeah. come on, don't, exactly. don't do it. Don't don't <laughs> Don't middle grounders, you know? Come on. No, no, exactly. Like, no, but right, like at the same time, like my experience, I personally, in like 20 years of doing development, I have not found the value of that approach, right? So when yeah. I talk with people who have, I'm curious to see, you know, get in their head and see how does their mind work? Like what, what problems yeah. are they having that I haven't encountered and why? And, yeah. you know, why do they find this value? Like, it is interesting to me because I don't see it. I don't find it. Yeah. Obviously, I write real-world software and I have been for a long time. So, you know, show me what it is that you see that I don't see. Yeah, but that's like talking yeah. to cult people, you know. <laughs> Fucking pointless. <laughs> so, on that bombshell. Well, yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> we have come to the end of the episode already. Uh, again, uh, thanks a lot, uh, Dimitri, for joining us. It's yeah, been no, uh, really, uh, a very fun conversation. Um, thanks a lot. But for this particular fantastic. cult podcast, yes. <laughs> yes. 
So, um, so that's the end of episode number thirty-nine. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know the the, the credits. You know um, that's with uh, Dimitri are also known as uh, Yogtos, all the everywhere on the internet, and uh, he's the dynamic typing uh, fanatic who doesn't <laughs> like static typing, as you heard already. Um, yeah. so, and of course, you know we we are on the web, and if you think uh, we're doing decent job, uh, we have this uh, Patreon thing going on. and we did a slight modification to our website which basically saying we're now pushing everything into soundcloud uh, as our website so all the links etc should be there in the show notes on soundcloud because you know we don't have time to maintain uh, all the multiple channel media empire that we have <laughs> so <laughs> we're trying to focus on one thing so if you uh, like the podcast uh, feel free to hit us up on uh, on slack uh, closure in slack we are on defen podcast and uh, you know the twitters and shit and everything uh, we we usually respond to people and ray gets into arguments with them yeah. and uh, it's much more fun over there we got to get the begging ball out as well a little bit you know oh yeah uh, so we of course uh, we, uh, we have uh, maybe Patreon. you guys should do that rather than that you do that yes you know? please yes. go ahead yes <laughs> ask for money <laughs> yeah cuz we we are we are uh, you know desperately poor closure developers <laughs> <laughs> we need the money <laughs> <laughs> no no it's really nice i mean we we we've got some patreon supports which is really good and um we we one of these days we're actually going to say what we're going to do with the money we we do a little bit of money with like we have to spend money on soundcloud and stuff like that but we and i think we've actually um funded wowter to come to a conference so that he can he's now going to be using closure uh so we've oh, brought cool. we've you know we've, we've kind of brought one on you know the patreon has yes. <laughs> helped to bring a new closure <laughs> developer into the world which is good so if you want more of that give us a dollar or two it'd be really good yes so uh, the link will be everywhere uh, online <laughs> so that's it from us and uh, so please give us money and have a nice day <laughs> and that's it bye bye